At the time, I will say we had maybe a little bit more of a glamorized view of what franchising was because we were burnt out on, on the daily grind of our core business. And then as we thought about franchising, we were like, oh, wow, that'll be easy. You know, we can leverage other people's efforts and scale the brand that way. And that was farthest from the truth. There was nothing easy about it. I actually, you know, spent a lot of time making sure I, I, when people come to me thinking about wanting to franchise their individual concepts, I spent a lot of time making sure they understand the magnitude of the learning curve and the journey that they're going to be embarking on. But ultimately it's all worked out. I call ourselves a, a 20 year overnight success because that's about how long it's taken for us to, uh, to reach the promised land. But it was a fun journey along the way, regardless. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey, everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Nick Friedman from College Hunks All in Junk. This is a moving and storage brand that's hard to miss, but it's also grown from zero to 188 territory since its founding in 2003. Nick shares a lot of the ups and downs along the way, all the things he's learned about how to scale a business and scale yourself out of a business, and he gives some great recommendations for aspiring entrepreneurs. I think you'll enjoy this episode. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. All right, guys, so I have a few words for you. Scalable, simple to operate, low initial investment, recurring revenue. Intrigued? Well, Pool Scouts is a premier brand in the $7 billion pool service industry, looking for business owners to become a part of their fast-growing franchise. If being part of an impactful, community-based pool service business sounds like a fit for you, then visit PoolScoutsFranchise.com for more information. That's PoolScoutsFranchise.com to learn more. Your brand's so memorable uh, just because of the name, College Hunks All in Junk. I know it was founded in 2003, but you want to kind of give us just some background? That, you know, like, How old were you? Were you in college? Were you a hunk all in junk? Like, how, how did this thing get started, man? Yeah, so I was brought up to follow the more traditional career path. You work hard in school, you get good grades, you get into college, you get a degree, you get a job and kind of move up the ladder that way. And the summer before our senior year of college, we were home for summer vacation in Washington, D.C. And my best friend from high school, his mom had a beat up cargo van from her furniture store. And she said, hey, why don't you guys use this van? You can make some money moving people's furniture, all the people's junk away. And then she kind of paused for a second. She goes, you guys could be like college hunks who haul junk. Yeah. And we kind of laughed about it at first, you know, so it was, uh, and then we looked at each other and we're like, that's kind of catchy. So we actually credit her not just with loaning us the van, but also with coming up with such a catchy uh, slogan or ultimately our brand name that we put around the uh, neighborhood with flyers. People had a need for the service. They thought the name was catchy. Uh, went back to school our senior year of college and ended up writing a business plan and it won an entrepreneurship competition. So it gave us a little more confidence in the idea. And then I always tell the story when we graduated and started the business on a full-time basis, we were doing all the work ourselves. So we were hauling the junk, answering the phone, driving the truck, 
And we had an 800 number that we purchased and put it on the back of our truck, but it was still routed to our cell phones. So people would call this 800 number to complain about erratic driving. And I'd be the one in the the driver's seat answering the phone, apologizing, pretending (laughs) like, you know, we're going to fire those guys back when they get to the office. Thanks for reporting that to us. Uh, So probably fired ourselves three or four times before we realized, you know, we needed to do some things differently if we were going to ever get off the trucks. Holy crap. Wow. Well, that's hilarious. Uh, And you are now the, I'm sure there's more, but you're you're the second franchise founder I've heard that had uh, at least a little bit of a push from a college entrepreneur competition. Crumble Cookies had like their, they designed their box. They didn't start it in college, but like they had some box that like some entrepreneurship thing started, branded the boxes, the pink boxes and ended up, that's what they use today. Um, So a little bit different. You know, there's something to be said about tapping into the college network. Uh, we, We actually did a case study competition in 2009 with the University of Tampa. We had just started franchising and one of the top finishing teams, they had a, a student on their team that really stood out to us. And we made a connection. Uh, about five years later, we ended up hiring him as our financial controller. And today he runs our company. He's our brand president, Roman Cowan. So he runs the whole show. And had we not done that case study at the very beginning, we would have never made that uh, made that connection. Yeah. No. Wow. That's fascinating. I, I have heard that from other folks in different arenas who who did start businesses in college. Like it, it does seem if you're of that mindset at that time, you know, I, got, I played soccer in college and other than that, I, you know, I got good enough grades and just spent the rest of my time socializing, we'll call it. But yeah, I mean, like uh, there's a big newsletter called Morning Brew that to, founded by two students at the University of Michigan and they grew that massively, but they really credit like the experimentation you get to do in college, the network you meet, uh, you know, from like alumni who may help you out. And and it seems to lead to kind of serendipitous events like that, where that's you right. know, a student becomes your, a very important employee, it sounds like. So that's pretty awesome. I want to talk about scaling, though, because that is definitely, you know, franchisor, franchisee, any entrepreneur, like scaling in the early days is difficult, especially though I, I, there's a lot of franchise owners, I think, across just the landscape at large, right? Who they probably get stuck at one unit, or I guess in your case, it would probably be like one territory. So you're driving the truck, you're doing everything, you and your co-founder. You know what changes were made that ultimately got you from working like in the business to being able to work on the business, so to speak. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, one of our mentors recommended to us a book called The E Myth. Revisited by Michael Gerber. Okay. And in that book, that's yeah. all he really bangs the drum about is transitioning from working in the business to working on it and creating systems and processes so that the business can scale. So when we read that book, it was like a light bulb moment went off for us is if we are ever going to have another truck, let alone another location, which was our big hairy vision, we've got to start documenting how do we do things. So we just started creating simple checklists. But as we did that, we started to be able to hire team members and they helped refine those systems and processes. And of course, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, hired the wrong people, you know, made the wrong leadership decisions. But something else that that book talked about was the concept of franchising. And it spoke about set your business up as if you were going to franchise it, even if you're not going to franchise it. And so that resonated a lot with us about how can we, you know, set our business up as if we were going to package it and have to replicate it in other markets. And, uh, you know, that also ultimately set us down the path to explore what is this franchising all about. At the time, I will say we had maybe a little bit more of a glamorized view 
of what franchising was because we were burnt out on on the daily grind of our core business. And then as we thought about franchising, we were like, oh, wow, that'll be easy. You know, we can leverage <laughs> other people's efforts and scale the brand that way. And that was farthest from the truth. There was nothing easy about it. I actually, you know, spent a lot of time making sure I, I when people come to me thinking about wanting to franchise their individual concepts, I spent a lot of time making sure they understand the magnitude of the learning curve and the journey that they're going to be embarking on. But ultimately, it's all worked out. I call ourselves a 20-year overnight success because that's about how long it's taken for us to uh, to reach the promised land. But it was a fun journey along the way regardless. I love it. It's funny, the E-Myth. I got that book probably three years ago. Still haven't read it. And I've there's so many conversations in franchising. I'm ashamed to admit it. There's probably some listeners out there screaming at me right now. But uh, yeah, it's on my night table. Just have, I got to get it open. It's very simple. I, you know, it's just a very simple concept. It's a, it's about a small business owner who has a bakery shop, and she just basically becomes sort of slave to her business, where she's spending all of her time baking cookies and brownies, and just you know the business won't function without her. You know, paperwork is piling up uh, because there's all these you know invoices and work uh, purchase orders that have to be managed, and uh, she's trying to figure out how she can sort of thrive in this business uh, because she was at one time passionate about baking cookies. And so it's really about how do you like sort of take that that passion that you have uh, or that magic that you have to offer, bottle it up and replicate it uh, so that it can be spread out uh, across a market or across a country or, or across the world. Definitely. I'm going to make a point this summer. That's a goal now to read the book. Uh, it's a weakness, always has been of mine reading books. But as far as franchising, I definitely resonate with what you said. There are, I mean, I think it's two things. One, if you are kind of, you've been grinding away at a small business, right? Uh, for, you know, even a few years, it can take a lot out of you. And sometimes it's almost, I call it like shiny object syndrome, where you just, there's something new and it's because it's new and different. It's like, oh, that's going to be better than what I'm doing now. But then there's also the el other element that you mentioned where I, I get why from the outside folks, you know, if they haven't franchised before, or been in franchise development and even just selling one franchise deal, the, the due diligence cycle and understanding all the different questions that are asked and, you know, really how sharp your operations have to be as a concept to be able to get someone from learning about a concept to actually signing the franchise agreement, wiring money. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big accomplishment for anyone to go from A to Z like that. But, you know, it is a lot. It's a lot of work. And it's almost like, I'm sure you probably agree, right? Like it's a second business effectively the day you decide to actually start franchising? Oh, 100%. You know, we were in the moving and the junk removal business, and we kind of knew that relatively well, although we probably should have tried to open up a second location before we tried to franchise the business so that we could have a proven kind of replicatable, repeatable case study to point to. But then once we got into franchising, we were no longer in the moving and junk removal business, but we were in the franchising business. So now it was about developing a process to market and award franchises or sell franchises, how to train and onboard a new franchise owner, how to provide ongoing support to help them be successful. And in franchising, it's really all about scale. It, one or two franchisees doesn't really make a brand. You've got to have critical mass and, you know, seem like an, an impossible number to ever get to when we were much smaller and only selling two or three franchises a year. But I was always told that the big hurdle that you want to get past it is the first 50. And then you got to get past 100 franchise locations where the royalty stream is really sufficient to cover the overhead of supporting the franchise system. And so that's why I say it's a long journey to embark on because 
selling that many franchises and helping them open is not an easy feat. But uh, once you're able to do it, if you've got a good model and the model continues to improve and, and fine tune to where it can be successful for the franchise owners, uh, then it can be a very uh, lucrative and very effective model. It's a fantastic way to scale. And the 50 unit mark does seem to be the uh, that kind of like first major hurdle, which most brands really don't really get past that. It, and it's it's tough, but I am curious, you know, have you guys, there's so many, I think, especially with new franchises coming in, it can be almost overwhelming. You know, you have like franchise brokers, you have franchise sales orgs who are more in depth and have maybe a more complicated contract and model to work with a new brand. And then there's other folks who are able to bootstrap it, figure it out themselves. Did you guys use any, I guess, more on the FSO? Have you just kept franchising internal the entire way or, or do you guys work with partners? No, we, we, we brought franchising in-house probably about five years ago. And so okay. from the very beginning, we had, first, it was just an individual who was, we pay, he was kind of, I think, a broker by trade, a franchise consultant by trade. And but he also would work to kind of dedicated with some specific brands on a commission only basis. And that was beneficial to us because there was no out of pocket expense and yep. we were sort of limited on our resources. And so that was effective for a while. And then we engaged maybe four or five years into it, uh, a more sophisticated third party organization, kind of a franchise sales organization, as you described, to assist us. And once there was some turnover in that relationship uh, and we hit a little bit of a, a lull, we said, you know what, let's bring this in-house. We've got the infrastructure, we've got the track record, and we can scale a team to help sell our franchises. So that's what we ultimately did. So it was an evolution for us. Amazing. It certainly is. And uh, even when you're thinking back to that decision to franchise, which I think what was it 2007 is what I'm seeing online. Was there any big learning that you wish you knew? Yeah, year one, let's call it. I know, you know, at this point it is it is a few years back, but anything specific where you're like, wow, I did not expect this to be this difficult or even the flip side, maybe something was um, easier than you would have anticipated. Well, I already recommended one book. There's another book I wish I had read when we started franchising. It's Shelly Sun's book, Grow Smart, Risk Less. And it's Shelly Sun, for those who don't know, is a franchisor, founder of Bright Star Care. It's a home health care uh, franchise. She started around the same time we did, but has grown significantly faster and, and larger than we have. And her book really is what I would call the blueprint for franchising. It, you know, maps out sort of your org chart as a franchisor. It maps out sort of the nuances of the franchise owner, franchise or franchisor, franchisee relationship. And so I wish we had read that book. I wish we had access to that book when we first started, because some of the lessons that we had to sort of learn the hard way, things like don't sell so much territory you know, we're territory-based franchise or, you know, be disciplined as to who you bring into the franchise. And, you know, honestly, it's easy to say now looking back, but back then when we were just needing to sell a franchise because we needed the capital and we needed the ejection and we were maybe a little bit less discerning as to who we would bring in, we maybe didn't have the luxury of being disciplined with that decision-making. So those were some of the lessons that I think we wish we had learned and, you know, a book that I wish I had read. And one of the things that popped into my head, I know you mentioned that you're not consistent with your reading, and I actually don't follow this advice <laughs> either, but I somebody once shared with me that if you just get up in the morning and read 10 pages every morning, it's pretty doable, you know, about, yeah. depending on your speed of reading, 10 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 if you're a slow reader and you need to reread stuff, but that's 300 pages a month, which is, you know, a book and a half or two or a book, so you're you know, 12 to 18 books a year. But I also think it's not necessarily the quantity of books that we read, but also sort of like 
how impactful and what action are you going to take with the books that you do read? Um, and so that's something I, I think finding that balance, because a lot of times I'll read books and I'll go back and like forget all the things that I underlined and dog-eared, but did I really put them into action or was it just sort of good information at the time? That is it. You know, there's, I forget who said this. It's not my quote, but you know, everyone knows about the quote, knowledge is power, but there's like this new, some podcaster says it. I think it's great. It's applied knowledge is power, right? Just like note-taking, which I'm famous for. I'll take notes, you know, all day, but did you apply? Did it actually dictate some type of action that, that changed your habit or improved something? So I completely agree there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, information is everywhere. Like you could ask Google, yeah. ask G- Chat GPT, how do I start my business? How do I grow <laughs> yeah. a successful business? It's going to tell you, it's going to give you that information. There's millions of books or blogs or podcasts about it. But to your point, it's implementing it. So it's kind of like the motivation plus the information. And then you take out the distractions or the noise in your head that's keeping you from pursuing whatever it is that you're motivated to pursue. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And actually, uh, Shelly Sun was on this, uh, oh, this nice. podcast uh, a few episodes ago. So the diehard listeners will be familiar with her. I also want to learn, like for you as a founder, and I mean, you and your co-founder started this in college. Did you give uh, thought to make like the industry or was it just you started a business in college and it kind of just grew from there and you said, let's keep going with it? You know, because like there's uh, one, you know, got junk. You know, uh, probably some other franchises in the realm. Was that ever a focus or did you just say, hey, and you know, you guys have close to 200 locations today. So fantastic growth, national brand, right? Like, did you ever think about the long term, let's, I don't know, industry of junk removal or is it just got going and, you know, the momentum and the inertia kept it where you just felt you should keep going with it? Yeah, it was, it was more the latter. It was more where, we had we were always very ambitious, and I, I you know I joke we weren't smart enough to start an innovative business. It's not like we invented something <laughs> like Google or Facebook or you know TikTok or what have you. Yeah. And, but we knew we had something with the brand. We knew we had something with the service that we were developing. We had read a lot of books on company culture, and that that sort of excited us about creating kind of a an ecosystem or a platform for people to be successful within. And so as that was evolving, then we did start learning about franchising, as I mentioned, from the E-Myth. You mentioned some of the other brands that had already started down the path of franchising in the moving or junk removal space. And we said, well, you know, every industry has a Pepsi to Coke or a Burger King to McDonald's or, a, you know, keep naming all the other examples of multiple different brands in a space. And we said, well, there's really no big other players in this sector of of moving and junk removal that are franchised. Now today there's, you know, probably half a dozen or more, which is fine. That means the the industry has matured. And so we just said, hey, let's make a run at it. You know, we why not us? We think we can do this in other cities. We think we can support this. We had gotten some good publicity and PR, which sort of, you know, fed our ego, but also our confidence a little bit in terms of, you know, how we could grow the brand. And so we just kind of kept running at it. Are you ready to take a dive into business ownership? Then you'll want to listen to this amazing opportunity I have to share with you. Pool Scouts is a premier brand that's an active part of the fast-growing pool service industry. Pool Scouts offers a highly scalable, easy-to-operate model with low initial investment fees and the security of recurring revenue from a repeat customer model. Don't know anything about pool maintenance? That's no problem. Pool Scouts offers a technician training program along with coaching for each of its business partners. 
Ready to make a positive impact in your community with a business that's invested in your future? Visit PoolScoutsFranchise.com to learn more. That's PoolScoutsFranchise.com for more information. It's a great point. And one, when I used to work with emerging brands and in different spaces, pet space, food and beverage, you name it, one in home services, you know, the prospects that was always, to me, it became a sign of maybe just someone who hasn't really looked at businesses too much because that became a common thing on an intro call. It's like, well, like who else is in there? Oh, there's someone else doing this. Like, you know, you're not first to market. You're not going to, it's not going to work. And I mean, yeah, you, you could Pepsi Coke. I mean, a burger franchise are my favorite and obviously food and beverage and fast food or, you know, what have you is certainly a massive industry and the size matters. Not every industry is going to be as big as fast food. But the reality is if you go down the burger list, I mean, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, uh, Five Guys, Culver's, In-N-Out Burger, Whataburger. I mean, I could I could keep going. Like Jack in the Box, you could probably count in there. RB, I don't know. I play, I yeah. play that game categories with my kids, and that's one of the categories. It will say <laughs> like fast food restaurants or what have you. And you yeah. know, everybody has to go around and name one. You can't name the same one twice. So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, brands are kind of ubiquitous. There, there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. But what we've done is we've been very intentional with our branding, you know, the name, the colors, kind of standing out in a crowded landscape. And then we've also been very intentional on sort of the internal brand, our culture. So our, our core values, our service uh, to the team members, to the franchise owners, and then ultimately to the clients. And then we just got to get strategic and tactical with how we execute our marketing strategy, with how we execute our, our client engagement and uh, relationship. How do we run the pipeline for our franchise prospects? How do we onboard our our franchise prospects. So provided that we can do that the same or hopefully better than both the independent movers and haulers out there, as well as the franchise movers and haulers out there, uh, then we can continue to win and grow. And it's not a either or proposition either. The, the industries are so big, there's enough meat on the bone for everybody to thrive and grow and be successful. And so that's why we don't get too intimidated or, or worried about competition because it's always going to exist. Competition is good for everybody, especially the consumer. Absolutely. It's rare that there's ever a, a winner-take-all market. And, you know, unless you're competing in search, which Google... Well, even, like I say, Google is the only search engine, but like Bing, and it, so there's another one like DuckDuckGo. Yeah. They're actually like, Bing does billions in revenue. That's right. And DuckDuckGo does a lot of, like, whoever started that is, is filthy rich for me. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to quote numbers for them, but like I... I was shocked at, even though their market share is so tiny, how much money the business still generates. That's right. And I've never done a, a search on anything but Google. But anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, anyway, franchising-wise, you know, you've been, it's not as common to speak to a founder who's been in the game so long, you know, a lot of times, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just, you start having success. Most people like kind of, you know, sell the business or maybe there's just, they have some type of buyout and yeah, and they leave. So it's rare to have someone who's been franchising and in franchising this long. You know, is there anything that changed the way you look at franchising today and like how to get a new prospect versus, you know, maybe when you started, obviously the internet is far more present, right? In everyone's daily lives, but even like, I, I don't know, just the FDD process, you know, things like that. Is there any like big changes where you're like, wow, like, you know, the, the way we used to sell franchises is just different or is it, 
fairly the same, just maybe your method of getting in front of people has changed. Yeah, I would say it's pretty consistent. Uh, the biggest difference, if I could identify one major, is we do all of our discovery days via Zoom. We do all of our franchise training via Zoom. So pre-COVID, all franchise candidates flew into Tampa. We did a full day of discovery day, you know, catered lunch, maybe dinner the night before, uh, franchise training, new franchises flew in for a full week of training, five days, seven days in person. And today, over the past three years since COVID, we have not done any of those in person and have found that we've sold just as many franchises and have had just as much success with our new franchises as we did pre-COVID uh, when we were doing them all in person. So that's been a major shift, you know, just kind of a shock to the system and really the workplace uh, environment for all companies in general. And then really as far as like sourcing franchise candidates and fostering the pipeline, social media has taken a more active role. The franchise consultants and broker networks have become much more established and sophisticated with the way that they source candidates and, and leads. So I think just continued evolution of, of you know, what there was. We never really had success with the trade shows, you know, we went to a couple in the early days and kind of uh, backed off of them and, and haven't really, you know, revisited it. But ours is territory based. So it's not like we can sell a ton of franchises in each market. So that's why maybe some of the regional or, or local shows aren't as relevant for our brand. It is interesting to hear the uh, discovery day and training process that's awesome though that the that it's effectively showing yeah you know no no drop in quality of uh, performance from franchisees so that's great and yeah it's, i mean i'm thinking like if i was buying a college hunks you ever get an objection or a question just like hey like because i'm just looking like i'm looking at your website even the box trucks are, are so big i'd be like hey you got to teach me how to drive one of those things in person do you guys just, you're able to talk them through like all those little things, I guess, right? Yes. And I mean, we do, we have a scenario where we now, because we've got critical mass across the country, we have them do a visit yeah. with a local neighboring franchise, typically the closest one. We do have coaches that fly out into the field uh, that will do some onboarding and, and coaching uh, during their ramp up phase. But yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we, when they come in for discovery day, we used to do a whole truck demonstration and all these things. And, and we've essentially eliminated all of those. Yeah. Okay. It's a great perk of just having that, uh, you know, that, that breach with the national network of franchisees. I'm curious, do, you know, we often have a, a lot of brick and mortar multi-unit franchisees, uh, on this show. You know, uh, I had Greg Flynn who owns like 3000 restaurants and I had Jamie Weeks who owns 140 Orange Theories and, you know, another hundred Dogtopias. I've never seen a franchisee in a service, more service-oriented business, who owns like, you know, let's call it, like, I don't know, 50 territories or 100 territories. You know, I'm curious, do you, A, is there like a franchisee, you know, because I'm, I'm looking on Crockett, which is the software platform I just researched. If you're just hearing that as a listener, it's crockett.com, K-R-O-K-I-T.com. Uh, it's a great franchise data platform. But I'm looking on Crockett and you got 188 locations slash territories open. So, uh, is there a franchisee in there who owns like, you know, big multi-unit? And if you don't think it's feasible for like these service-based models to get to that scale, you know, I would be curious to lear learn the reason. Yeah. So I was talking to uh, some folks from franchise service brands, which is like sort of propainers and, and Paul Davis oh, yeah, yeah. things of that nature. Well, that and they said that they really haven't seen 
a successful multi-unit owner in a service franchise. And we have experienced similar. And the reason is if you have a retail store or fitness gym or restaurant or whatever, you have four walls, your employees come to those four walls and your customers come to those four walls. And so you can manage a manager remotely because everything is contained within those four walls. In a service business, your employees come to the HQ and then go out into the community to your customers with all these trucks. And there's, it's just as another layer of variability and a little bit of complexity that makes managing it with multiple locations and multiple managers a level up in terms of difficulty. Sure. And there is one uh, institutional-backed franchisee of service brands that I'm aware of. It's a, a, a private equity group called Altamont, and they started a, a brand called Service Minds, and they own a large number of franchises of the authority brands franchises in the Southeast. And so they own Ben Franklin Plumbing and a bunch of HVAC and Plumbing primarily franchises, but there it's it's a group that previously owned a bunch of fitness franchises as franchisees, a private equity group. They exited that, and now they have a thesis of owning and operating a large portfolio of service brands, and they're they're doing well with it. But I do think it takes a different level of complexity and infrastructure to be able to uh, to operate multiple service franchises versus multiple retail restaurant. Yeah, that's really great insight. I didn't know about that group, Altamont. So I'm going to do you know a deep dive on them and see what I find. But yeah, I could see the op. I mean, of course, like the operational complexity, it, it is different. Yeah, you're going into you're driving around. You know, whether this is whether it's your business or an HVAC business or plumbing or what have you. Yeah, it's really fascinating, honestly. Well, I mean, and regardless, folks, you know, I'm looking again at the numbers on Crockett. Fantastic, you know, return on capital relative to the investment. So. I'm still a great business opportunity, even if you're not going to be able to scale past a territory or two. You know, I'm curious, Nick, do you have a goal? Like, you know, sometimes people do, sometimes they don't, but founders and CEOs sometimes are like, this is our North Star. This is like the growth goal we want to hit. Others are just like, ah, you know, I'm just having fun. I'm just going to keep doing it until I stop having fun. (laughs) Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we keep moving the goalpost. We continue (laughs) to evolve our, uh, our aspirations. You know, when we first started, it was, a million in revenue, if we could just get our business to do a million in revenue. And then it was, hey, if we could just sell a franchise. And then this 100 million system-wide revenue seemed like an unattainable number. We hit that a few years ago. It'll do just a little oh, bit nice. uh, shy of 300 million this year. So now we've set the target at a billion uh, as far as system-wide revenue. So we're marching to that. You know, th- those are just numbers. Those are just kind of fun scoreboard to try to attack and execute against. Um, but I think what, and I don't want it to sound cliche, but I, what I do enjoy the m- most out of our business is seeing the success our franchise owners have, the success our team members have. We've got examples of guys and, and gals who started at the front lines and then moved up to own franchises or moved up to become management or executive level team members. We have franchise owners that are making a lot of money buying multi-million dollar homes and vacation homes and you know, five-star vac- vacations and sprinter vans and all these kind of things. And and I think that is really validating and, and sort of fulfilling for me as the founder to see the lives of the folks that we're impacting through the continued growth of the business. So, you know, obviously it'd be, it'll be fun to say, hey, we grew from a cargo van to a billion dollar 
business. That, that That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so I think that's going to be, you know, sort of the nice to have, not have to have. Amazing. I couldn't imagine it, but that's got to feel awesome to, yeah, be able to just see kind of the system you created, the brand you created, and for someone else to be able to just basically have their life changed. I mean, that, that's got to feel pretty damn awesome. So congrats, man. And, you know, I do also, I am curious because like your growth path seems to really have accelerated. And there's, you know, I've seen this with some of like the content stuff I've done where, like let's say on Twitter, where today I've got 121,000 or, or something followers, but, you know, I've been doing it since like July of 2021. So almost two years. I remember that like the first year or the first nine months, I think I had like 4,000 followers. And my goal, it's funny, like my goal is like, I got to get to 10,000. Then I got to 10,000 and I was like, this is, I got to need more. Like you just always, it's kind of like what you said, moving the goalpost. But, you know, I took me nine months to go from again, zero to 4,000 or whatever. And then the next nine months, I think I went from 4,000 to like 90,000. So there was this compounding effect. And I, you know, it's different with an actual living, breathing business and franchise. But, you know, I noticed 2019, 104 total locations. And then by 2023, I'm seeing 188 total territories. So, and that's through COVID, no less. So very impressive growth. But like, yeah, what do you think, you know, is there some moment where all of a sudden things just started happening? But like, you know, you clearly had momentum, but I'm sure, right, to go almost double locations in four years that took you 12 years to get to, right? That's a serious compounding momentum that you have. I mean, you hit, hit the key word, compounding effect. Momentum is real. Uh, exponential progress is, is is real. So where it felt linear at the beginning, it ultimately you know has, has turned into exponential growth. The flywheel that Jim Collins t- describes is when you start pushing this flywheel, it's you know inching forward, inching forward, and eventually it, it develops uh, a level of momentum where you can put the same effort, but the spin is so much faster because it's kind of rotating on its own. And uh, I saw a chart that somebody uh, shared with me where it showed like Starbucks in the first 25 years had like, you know, whatever it was, 10,000 employees. And then in the next like five years, it had X million employees or same with Apple. You know, it took them like 25 years to hit this tipping point. And it took us 15 years to get to call it 30 or 50 million in system-wide revenue. And then the next five years, we're at 300 million. So there is this compounding uh, effect to it uh, because we're reaching that many more people. Our budget is that much larger. The impact of the clients we've already touched, you know, and, and have circled back through the media that we've appeared on has gotten recycled and repurposed. And so uh, all of that stuff just adds up and, and creates that uh, that flywheel effect. The analogy my dad used when he was explaining it to me, and he kind of used a furniture moving analogy because it's, you know, relevant with our brand. He said, you know, if you got a dresser that's sitting there on the floor, you're trying to move it and you just kind of run into it full speed, the dresser's going to knock you down and you're going to get hurt. Like, whereas if you're like pushing that dresser slowly, you know, with, you know, driving your legs or whatever, it's going to start sliding on the floor and it's going to be hard to move at first, but eventually it's just going to keep, you know, sliding. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can, you know, move it pretty readily as long as the floor is smooth and there's not anything in its way. And so I think that's kind of the metaphor or analogy I think of with with our business is we were pushing, 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 and eventually it sort of had a breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always cool to see that. And I mean, yeah, 50 to, to 300 million in five years. I mean, that's, that's incredible. So yeah, well, look, man, uh, congrats on all the growth. Best of luck on the continued success. And, you know, if, if there's folks listening to this and are interested in the business or, or following you, is there anywhere online where, where they can do either of those? 
Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a personal website, nickfriedman.com, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can connect with my social channels. My social media handle is at Nick Friedman, and then the number one, Nick Friedman one. Uh, you can also go to our collegehunks.com website if you want to learn about our franchise opportunities or moving or hauling needs. Uh, so those would be the, definitely the best ways to connect. Awesome. We'll plug his websites and socials in the show notes, everyone. Definitely follow along. And yeah, if you're looking for, you know, a, a franchise you can get up and running, this looks like a great one. So, uh, Nick, thanks again, man. And uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.